Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu salam rasulullah wa ala alihi wa sabi ajma'in ashar wa la ilaha illallah wa ashar wa muhammadun abdullah rasulullah ba'd. You're listening to Islam always and we're always broadcasting 24 hours a day, 7 days a week right here on Islam always. Where we're always open 24 hours a day and always plenty of free parking. This is your host, Yusuf Estes, the National Muslim Chaplain. And for the next few minutes, we're going to be talking on the subject of the Bible and what we call the beginnings, and also Muhammad in the Bible. Okay. Now that might surprise a lot of you to, to hear that we're trying to say that the beginnings of the Bible, and at the same time we're talking about Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. To begin with, the the word Bible itself comes from the Kone Greek. It's not a Hebrew word. It's not an Aramaic word. The language of Jesus, but rather it's a translated word, and it describes the book, the book of the people of the book. And it simply means book. It comes from the word biblios, and later they drop the S on it, and it just becomes book. And it is the collection of scriptures that is uh, with the people of the book. This is what it means. It's interesting that people today still refer to it as the book, as the Bible, and that's exactly what Allah calls it in the Quran, the Bible, the book. So that's the first thing I'd like to mention. The next thing is the, the Bible is divided uh, today in the English translation for Christians into two sections. For the Jews, it's also their book, but it, in their case, it's in two main sections. They have what they call the Torah, which is the law the law, the canon or the law that comes to them and it's coming to them according to their scholars some of their scholars say it's actually from Moses the newer scholars say no it was actually from people after him they have another book the Talmud and this one is having a lot of information in it regarding certain things within the law but uh, we don't need to get into that just mention that that's what they have today they do have translations to the English language. Then when we talk about the Bible from the Christian point of view, it's in uh, their two main sections, which falls into the Old Testament. This represents the Torah and the prophets, the mentioning of prophets and their messages that they came with. And then their New Testament or the covenant of the of Jesus or the gospel or the Injil. It's referred to in different languages, different things. But basically there's two main parts. The old, referring to the uh, Beni Israel and the sons of Israel, or the Jewish, as they might tell you. And then the other part, which is their New Testament, the New Covenant, the Gospels, the Good News for Modern Man, etc., etc. That is uh, what most Christians refer to as their Bible. Now, the Old Testament of the King James Version contains 39 books in it, starting with Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and uh, uh, Deuter uh, what? Leviticus, the laws from the Levites. Uh, the Levites were the people, the religious people in charge of the law, in charge of the temple, in charge of their sacrifices, etc. They were the twelfth tribe of the, of the uh, 
12 and the other 11 had to work and have regular jobs, but the 12th tribe, the Levites, couldn't work. They had to have people uh, donate to them. So they worked it out that the other tribes would all donate 10% each of what they had to give over to the Levites because they weren't allowed to work. It was forbidden. So therefore, they had to get by on 110%. 11 times 10, so it's not too bad. <laughs> but anyway, that's how that worked. I'll give you a little history of that. The actual Bible itself according to one of the top scholars who has uh, published a book on the subject that used to be available at Barnes & Noble, Bookstop, Borders Books and Music. Today you have to back order it. But uh, Alhamdulillah, I did get a few copies of it before they took it out like that. But this book was written by uh, Richard Elliott Friedman, and it's called Who Wrote the Bible? Ultimately, his conclusion is that the Old Testament that they have today is not really from Moses, not really from Joshua, not really from any of those prophets who came or leaders of the Jewish uh, tribes, but actually it uh, occurred, the, the one they have now is a, a occurrence which took place during the Babylonian exile, and this was compiled by someone by the name of Uzair who is mentioned in the Quran and he's mentioned also in the Bible as Ezra. And there is a book called Ezra and according to Richard Elliot Friedman, he's referring even to his own work in there that he's talking about and it's even so up until this day. When he mentions those things, that means up until the Babylonian exile. Because obviously if Moses said such and such happened and they named this place so and so and it's still named that even to this day, why would he say that? Because he's current. He's, he is at that time. Why would he say up until this day? So these are some of the things and the proofs. You're free to go to our website and read more about it. We quoted from his book. And if you want a copy of his book, just contact the previously mentioned sources and back order it. It's a little expensive, about $50, $60, but... It's worth it. And the next thing I mentioned is that those books are what we call the books of Moses. There are other books, though, that do not fall in chronological order. According to when you go to seminary school to study to be a preacher, they will tell you a lot of things about the Bible. In fact, you can learn more things in seminary school about the Bible as a Protestant or a Baptist than you can as a Catholic priest. Because traditionally, over the centuries, even the priests were not allowed access to the Bible. It might surprise you. They were not allowed access to it until they get to a certain level. And even then, it was discouraged because they didn't want them trying to translate it to the languages, etc. A lot of what they had was in Latin, but I'm not to that part yet. Let me just stay with this. One of the oldest works from the Bible, according to what I read on this topic, what they taught us was that the book of Ayub, or Job as it's called in English, is perhaps one of the very oldest of their extant sources referring to this book. The prophet Job, who had all the trials, tribulations, and the big test. I like to refer to that because actually this is what Muslims believe very much in the 
in the prophet Job, Ayub, and what he went through, and that all of us are living in similar circumstances even today. We go through a lot of that. We're all tested similarly. Um, another ancient book, which may or may not be uh, uh, referred back as far, because sometimes people wrote things and then put dates on them that uh, preceded their actual time, or even signed names of prophets to their books. There were many books called the Book of Abraham. None of those are published as a part of the Bible. But they have been offered as that over the centuries. And then when they compiled the codexes, then what they did here was to eliminate books that they thought were a bit too dubious. And those still, though, are called Apocrypha, books which are hidden from the public. And uh, I do have a list of those. And then actually I have some of them translated to English in my library. I inherited those from my father who was a big collector of these kinds of works. He was very fascinated with that and spent a lot of his life reading and studying the Bible. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my dad because I love him and I miss him and I'm making dua for him. But, uh, you know, it's my program so I can do what I want to. And my dad uh, read the entire Bible by the time he was 10 years old. He received an award from the church for his accomplishment because he was, at the age of 10, very knowledgeable in the Bible, and he had read the entire thing completely, and which at that time was kind of amazing. And the one who signed his Sunday school attendance records and signed this award that he received was somebody by the name of H.A. Berger, Harry Arnold Berger. And I remember that name real well. You know why? Coincidentally, that happens to be the name of my grandfather, because he later wound up marrying my mother, who was, of course, the daughter of his Sunday school principal. So, in any case, I like to ask the believers, you know, to make du'a for my dad, because, alhamdulillah, he accepted Islam before he passed away. It was really beautiful. Now, th having said that, this exposure that some people have that they care and they start so young to study and learn in, in their religion is actually a good thing because it shows a dedication. And when anybody from the monotheistic religion is seeking after God, this is a good sign. I don't discourage the Jews or Christians whatsoever from trying to find God, but I encourage them to, to seek and to always keep open mind and open heart. The same for Muslims, the same way. Keep your mind open, keep your heart open, and always seek truth, even if it goes against what other people are saying. But if it, it's apparently the truth to you, check the sources, prove it to yourself, be convinced, and don't accept emotional things or dreams or weird stuff without testing what you have. And this will ultimately, inshallah, always lead you to the truth. Now, coming back to our topic of the beginnings of the Bible. In the beginning, the Bible was preserved in two ways. It was memorized mouth to ear, generation to generation. Something very familiar to the Muslims, that's how the Quran is today. The second thing was they wrote down what they heard, and they used to write it on animal skins and... Uh, different types of uh, medium that they had at the time, then they would bury it. Most of these scrolls were 
uh, rolled up and placed inside of something, you know, and then buried. Then they would dig them up so many years later and then make sure that their recitation from mouth to ear had not deviated from the scripture. And then somebody would hold the scripture and listen to others recite to be sure what was recited was what the grandfathers had written. And that was, uh, this was also mentioned in some of the early works that I studied. This ensured that the people didn't get away from the message, but it also kept people from playing with the written scripture because you couldn't get access to it without knowing where it was. It was mentioned that in King Solomon's temple that there was a vault or a place underneath it where such things as this were stored or kept and that during the Babylonian exile that there was an Ark of the Covenant that was lost. An Ark is something which is a large container. It's mentioned in the Bible in several places and it talks about the Ark of the Covenant and this is where they kept this, the staff or the rod of Aaron now, we would call it Moses' stick, but they called it the rod of Aaron, his brother, Harun. Anyway, that was there, along with some of the other artifacts and relics that they had, including the scriptures. According to the Bible itself, it tells you that they lost this Ark of the Covenant and the scriptures when the Babylonians overpowered them and destroyed the temple and drug them off into bondage. They were in bondage. Of course, everybody knows they were in bondage in Egypt. That's a famous story from the time of Yusuf, salam, Joseph, the, the, one of the twelve sons of Israel, of Jacob. But another time of bondage for them was this, uh, I think, 70 or 80 year period that they were uh, in uh, Babylon. When they returned, they tried to rebuild the temple, and this occurred on more than one occasion, but they never really were able to totally rebuild the temple again. But what they were able to do was to reconstruct their book, and that's our subject, so I'm mentioning this. And uh, this, again, falls directly in line with uh, Professor Friedman's work on who wrote the Bible, because obviously you can see that this is a parallel. And uh, the reconstruction of this was based on the recollection or the recitation of those people who were in Babylon. Now, why he says there's a difference, or not contradiction, no, nobody likes to say there's a contradiction in text, but there are different versions, for instance, in the book of Genesis, of the story of the creation. There are different versions in the book of Genesis of the story of Noah, to touch on that just for a second, there's a different order of the way the sequence of events taking place in creation and Genesis. Once it's told one way and then the other time it's told another way. So the second thing that I mention is the, of Noah or Noah, peace be upon him, because you have a story very clearly saying that he took all the animals two by two. There were only two by two. There were a pair of each one and that's it. But in another uh, rendering of this story, we find that he took two of every animal, which were the unclean, and seven pairs of the clean animals. And uh, then there's some explanation, that I think, that goes along with this. The point here is that you have two different stories, and the reconciliation is brought about in a very unusual way, because they talk about that at the time of the Babylonian exile, 
right before that, that the Jews happened to have been divided up into a number of camps. If you recall, the Bible tells us, and we have this in the Quran as well, that when they were traveling along with Moses, they came to a particular place. And Moses struck the rock with his stick, and water came from it, and the people knew of their particular places to go. Each of the tribes knew which was their land, and they went off to their land in the different directions. So there became a place known as Judah, and this was for the tribe of Judah. This was to the middle or the south part. Another place was called Benjamin or Benjamin, and that was over to the southeasternly area. Another place was called Yusuf or Joseph, and that was for these people. Another part was divided up for each and every one of the 12 tribes of Dan, of uh, the different ones. Now, one part was called Israel. I don't know how that came about. I, I didn't study that in that kind of depth, but there geographically still today is a place called Israel. We know that full well. And the claim that goes with it is based on these texts that I'm telling you about right now. Judah was having their own leadership. Israel was having their own leadership, etc. So there were 12 basically different groups, and some of them pretty much agreed on what the Bible says, but some didn't. Some of them had a different concept or akida or belief system. Some believed God could dwell within his creation. Others said, no, he couldn't. This is obvious from the Bible itself when it tells you of the dua or the prayers of David when he says, when he's building the Beit Allah, the, the house of God, and he says, uh, and it's recorded in the Bible, that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, talking about God, how much less this house which has been built with our hands. So he's clearly saying that God cannot be in his creation. However, we find that whoever is coming up with some uh, stories in the book of Genesis even is saying that God can be in the creation because it says he's walking on the earth like a man and he's looking for Adam and he can't find him. So that's a, an amazing statement to say something like this. How could God be walking on the earth and he can't find something that he created? So this again is mentioned in the book that I was referring to. I, I encourage you, you know, to get a copy of the book. You can write to me at askislamataol.com and I'll try to help you locate a, a book or somebody that might loan you one. And everybody's welcome to ask. If we can find it, we'll do it. Inshallah. Anyhow, I want to come to some points here because I want to move to the New Testament, the, the beginnings of that as well. Uh, the thing that happened at the time of the redactor, the redactor is the one who puts together these pieces. He hears from these different ones and puts it together. The one we're assuming is Uzair. But I'm not going to say it was because it's not my business. I'm not a Jew and I'm not trying to defend the position of any of their scholars. I'm just telling you what they say. But whoever the redactor is or redactors, some assert that there are more than one. Some say there are several. In fact, some say there are four different uh, compilers or redactors. Some refer to it as J for Jehovah, where God's name is mentioned as Jehovah. 
Some say E, which would be talking about Elohim. And uh, there are others, and again, it's not... P is another one for the priestly text, etc. All this dealing with the Old Testament. They're saying, though, that these uh, different akidas or belief systems were all together at the same time in Babylon so that whoever was there redacting or listening and compiling was able to listen to each one of them and then try to weave it together as one story, which would be similar today as, let's say, that you have some people who have hadith that are collected by, let's just say, uh, one person and some hadith collected by somebody else. Whereas one of the scholars said that these are, are, I accept these. Another scholar said, well, I accept these. But he said, no, I can't take those because uh, this has so-and-so in the narration, chain of narrators, that we don't accept him. And they said, yes, but we do. So where would you be on this? So this is basically where you'd say, well, let's figure a way to put it all together. And some of them might be weak and some might be fabricated, some might be strong hadith or etc. I'm saying this for the benefit of the Muslims who are here. Those non-Muslims listening to me won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it because you already understood what I said before that in the English. The point is that you have different sources and they don't agree so you're trying to weave it together as one story. Whoever the redactor was that did this did an excellent job because he reconciled a lot of different subjects that people used to fight over and he tried to put it together to end this fighting and unite the people in one way, which is always a good idea to try to unite people, without doubt. Anyhow, there are some other books of the Old Testament that are gone. We no longer have those anymore. Some of them are referred to by name and we don't know what they said. Other books exist, but they're not published as a part of the Bible, as I already mentioned, called Apocrypha. And then there are some other books which do exist in certain forms. For some of the Jews, yes, they still have it. For the Catholics, they still have it in their book. For the Protestants, however, they threw those books out about six or 700 years ago, before the translation of the English language. And if you doubt what I just said, I will share with you that the Catholic Church to this day, and this day where I'm talking right now happens to be in the month of November in the year 2005, for future reference, <laughs> they still have 73 books, whereas the Protestant Bible has only 66. And even then, some of the books themselves are not matching exactly. Some of them continue on where others stop. Some are having verses that are not uh, there. Others are adding verses in or out. So the Bible between the Catholic and the Protestants is not the same. Although they're trying desperately these days to reconcile a lot of that. And very interesting enough, in these days, we find that the Catholic Church has now renounced and denounced verses dealing with anything that argues with the so-called modern theory of evolution. Anything in creation stories, they're pretty much dropping that out of their teaching and saying don't refer to that because it's not accurate. This is the Catholic Church's most recent edict, which is last month, October 2005. Similarly, they are dropping out any verses which attack or say anything harsh against the people of the Jewish faith even though it's in the Jewish book. 
they are still taking this and saying we don't go with that anymore. And things talking about Jesus coming back in the last day, such as the book of Revelations, they're also no longer teaching this anymore as being part of the Bible. So for them, the changes go on and on and on. And this is, of course, in the New Testament, but we don't need to go there yet. I'm just telling you that there are some books for the Old Testament that are not in the Protestant New Testament, such as the book of... Uh, uh, Maccabees, that's a tribe, and Maccabees 2, Maccabees 1, Maccabees 2, um, Baruch, and um, there's a list. There's a list, and it doesn't really matter. Point is, you got seven books there, and both of these are Christians. We're not saying it's different, the different Jewish, no, because there are different versions for the Jews, which we already mentioned, but those were reconciled by their redactor. Now I guess the Christians need a redactor so they can come up with one version of their New Testament. I don't know. But anyhow, let's now shift the gears a little bit and talk about what's called the prophets. The prophets, are. this is a part of the Old Testament talking about prophets by their names. There's a prophet mentioned by the name of Zachariah. There's a prophet mentioned by the name of Jonah. We already mentioned prophet Job. There are other prophets, Hosea. Amos, and many others as well. There are also books that refer to the poetry or the du'as, supplications, recitations of the prophet Dawood or prophet David, and also Suleiman, his son. In those, we find, uh, even today, some which looks more or less like poetry, like as though it had rhymed and it was something to memorize. It's called in Arabic Zabur. The Zabur are these uh, sayings or teachings from David and according to the Bible also Suleiman and even some that I read, they said they refer these back to Moses. I didn't know Moses had Zabur, but this is what it says in some of the teaching that you might find in seminary school. Those works are pretty interesting. In fact, uh, I used to really enjoy reading psalms. I used to enjoy it so much. And there's one famous psalm, Psalms 23, which is, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's so famous. And it's a comforting verse or a series of verses for the Jews and Christians alike because it talks about God in a, in a way that God is taking care of me even though I have difficulties through my life, things are happening to me. It's sufficient for me that I have God and He's by my side taking care of me. We as Muslims might not want to put God in the creation exactly like that, but we do say in Amal al-Sabirin that uh, Allah is with those who are patient. So in this same way, you might take the text to mean that in that context. That Allah There are many of the verses that you would find in the Zabur or Psalms that Muslims would say, absolutely, this is exactly what we have in the Qur'an or the teachings of Muhammad There's another book called Ecclesiastes. You might enjoy reading some verses from there. And again, you'd say, this is sounding like Islam. You would look to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs also deals with sayings and teaches in a poetic form in places. In fact, you'll find such interesting things as the time for all things. 
There's a time for all things. There's a time to live and a time to die. A time for peace and a time for war, etc. Of course, I quoted those because I used that in some of my talks because I want to show people that even in the Bible we find that there are times when it isn't appropriate to sit by and watch people be, uh, you know, run over or, you know, the religion be desecrated so people have to stand up. And that's what the Bible says. And the Quran is saying nothing different than this. But uh, now we move into another section. Let's look at the New Testament and what is the origins of the New Testament. One of the things you have to know immediately, the New Testament relies on the Old Testament. You can never cut it off. You can't say that this is something totally different and just drop it. Because there are too many references in the New Testament talking about the Old Testament as a proof. In other words, we prove this is from the uh, Scripture before because haven't you heard XYZ? And then they quote from the Old Testament. With the constant repetition of going through and referring to these verses, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to say, and we don't accept it anymore. Now, this is something, I'm going to step out of character for just a moment here and, and talk to the Muslims. This is why I don't like to see the Muslims playing games with Scripture. You have the Quran, and it is sufficient. It is sufficient for us. We do not need to go and study the Bible. What you're hearing from me is enough. You don't need, not because it's from me, but I'm just telling you, this, you more than this, then you're going to have to ask yourself what you're going to try to do. Because if you're going to go through there and study the Bible and then try to make the Jewish believe so-and-so about their book or make the Christians believe so-and-so about their book, they won't do it. Why don't you, if you're so serious, why don't you learn about your own book and just present it as is? Let that be your strong suit. You believe in the Quran? You convinced that it's from Allah? And you think that it's a proof? Then present it. But don't go back and try to attack what they have. And that's a teaching from the Quran itself. You are not allowed to do that. Now, next. I'm talking about the New Testament. As I mentioned already, it does refer heavily and rely heavily on the Old Testament, so you can't cut it off. The first is called the Gospels. There's three Gospels. I know everybody's going to say, I thought there were four. There are three Gospels which are synoptic. They follow the same synopsis. These today are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the fourth one. Fourth. But it's not synoptic. It's called the Johann Gospel. And it follows a different way. The first three are based on an ancient work that no longer exists. And this one is referred to by a letter. They say that this, uh, these are based on an older document called Q, the letter Q. I already told you about other letters in the Old Testament, J and E and P, and there are some others but here they're relying on a document called Q that no longer exists. There are some very heavy arguments that the scholars of the Bible have explaining this subject. But at the same time, the work that we have by F.F. F. Bruce, this is now a Christian scholar, 
called The History of the Translations of the Bible to the English Language. It's a long title. It's too long of a title. But you get his book and read it, and he talks about this in detail. Also, again, in seminary school, they will teach you, as I just mentioned, about the Synoptic Gospels, following this same synopsis, 1, 2, and 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John having a totally different approach and coming much later. It's also interesting to note, though, that the scholars tell us that the oldest manuscripts they have, they feel, really are coming from Paul, who never even knew Jesus. He's after Paul. So even the oldest of the Gospels are not at the time of Jesus. They're coming later. Some have tried to reconcile that it's within 10 years of the time that Jesus left the earth, peace be upon him. Others have said, no, it could be as late as in the 80s or 90s. Okay, which is considerably a longer time. And some of the actual pieces or remnants that they have of this can be carbon dated to the second century. Can't even be put in the... The carbon dating will not put them in even the same century as Jesus. Peace be upon him. All that notwithstanding, I just wanted to mention that there is a difference there. I would like to tell you that they were not called Matthew, Mark, and Luke or John until later church fathers decided to give personal names. They extracted the names in some ways from the text and some from the reference in the text as to who may or may not have been the person writing it. For instance, Matthew is, uh, is actually supposed to be a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector from the Levites. But in fact, uh, they're taking that from the text itself because it used to have a letter. This scripture used to be called by a letter just like Q and J and P and all the rest of it. And so was Mark and so was Luke. They used to have letters, but they decided that's too impersonal and they gave it these names. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John is mentioned in the book of John, so that's where they got the name John for that. There's somebody named Yahya in there, John. But it's not John the Baptist. It's another John. A different John. It says so in the text. So Now, another thing you'll find when you're reading the English translation of the Bible, parentheses. Parentheses are popping up a lot in the New Testament. Not so much the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And the reason is because the redactors of this, and you might say, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, there, as I told you, there were different versions. So there were people who later on compiled and said, this is the book. The people of Corinth, for instance, they had their own book. And it was actually a letter from Paul. Today it's called Corinthians 1 and 2, the Corinthian letters. Then there's uh, letters uh, Peter, and there's the the Romans. There's uh, the book of Hebrews, which is by Paul. The Acts of the Apostles, which is about Paul, but is not Paul writing it. They believe that whoever wrote Luke is the same one who wrote the book, the Acts of the Apostles. Well, they're not positive, but pretty short. For Muslims listening to me, I keep seeing you guys shaking your heads, shaking your heads like, what is this? For those of you who are online, you can't see this. If you understand Islam and you understand the Quran, you can understand why is this, this look of, are you serious? Well, 
Muslims grow up knowing a lot about the Quran from the very beginning, whereas today's Christians know very little as a whole. There's a few. They know quite a bit. But as a whole, the majority of the Christians, if you ask them how many books are there in the Bible, they'll say two, old and new. And you go, no, 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 no. How many different books within the Old Testament or the New Testament? They don't have a clue. I dare say almost every Muslim I've met knows there's 114 surahs in the Quran. They'll even tell you that all of them start with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, except Surah Tawbah, but it has it in another book. I think it's chapter 28. You'll find the letter, which is to Bilqis, and it says Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in there. So things like this are known, as a matter of fact, to the Muslims, even the youth. But this is not the same for the followers of the Bible. The Bible today is not really, there's no emphasis on the Bible to be reproduced in the original languages. I have not found anyone teaching their children to recite the Bible in Kone Greek or in Aramaic or in ancient Hebrew language. I haven't found anybody insisting on that. There are some from the Jewish who do recite their book in parts in Hebrew, yes but not insisting on memorizing the whole thing. And especially, the, the, of course, the Jews are not going to tell you anything about the New Testament. They don't accept it. So we've been talking a little bit here, those of you just tuned in, about the origins or the beginnings of the Bible. I talked about the Old Testament. I spoke about the New Testament to some degree. This is topical. I'm not trying to go in any depth. This is just something that if you signed up for a course in Bible, they'd tell you all that I said Today, probably in the first one or two days in seminary school, you'd know more than me. Because it doesn't take long, it doesn't take long to get the idea. A lot of the scholars of the Bible who go into it real deep, especially those who deal in uh, archaeology and ancient languages and study it, they, many of them become atheists or agnostics. Or at least they say the Bible is something compiled by man, inspired by God, but, you know, we're not going to take it to be the letter of the real God. We don't accept that. And nobody will say that it's written by the hand of God. None of the real scholars ever will say that. Even F.F. F. Bruce, who happens to be a very dedicated Christian, very much a born-again, and an authority in the New Testament, still has clearly stated that what they have in English is not the original by any stretch of the imagination. There are too many versions, etc. And now uh, I'm going to refer to something else on our website of, about this subject. Those of you who uh, perhaps don't know this, I wrote a book on this subject. It's called Bible, A Closer Look. You can go to that. Uh, I'm going to real quick like give those of you online a chance to go there. I'm going to give you the link. It's coming to you right now. You can just click on that. and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just to give you a, a sample of this. This is islamtomorrow.com slash Bible slash Bible underscore closer underscore look dot ASP. So take a chance to go to that and see what you think about it. I'm going to quote you some of the things from there. Uh, there are six chapters and an introduction about this. And I'm only going to be reading 
to you now from chapter 1. We've been talking about the Bible, the word Biblios, we mentioned this, uh, etc. I want to tell you now about something called the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. It was my grandfather who was a devout, wonderful Christian man and someone I love very much. He gave me a gift of the Holy Bible for myself and one each to my sisters. And uh, this is way back in the early 50s. It was a brand new authorized version of the Bible being the revised standard version of the Bible, revised version of the American Standard Version published in 1901. I'm reading it from, this is from the Bible itself. This is the introduction. What I just read to you is from it. I'm going to say it again. This is the authorized version of the Bible being the revised standard version of the Bible based on the revised version of the American Standard Version published in 1901, which was a version of the King James Version published in 1611, which was a revised and corrected version of for the first time in 1612. Version. And I was very impressed that the easier text that we had in this was much easier for me to read than the old the old style of English in what's called Elizabethan English because it would begin with verily and forsooth and thine eye has not seen the day wherein thine was thy Lord when you're going what is all of this and so they produced it in an easier grammar something easier and also a lot of the words were no longer in vogue and you couldn't understand what the word was one part of the New Testament, it said, it is hard for thee to kick against the goads. And we said, what are goads? Nobody knows what's a goad, you know. But it turns out that that meant kicking your foot against something that has these stickers or pricks out that are going to hurt you. And so they give another meaning for that. Another uh, section, it talked about words that now have a reverse meaning. What it used to mean, one, it says, now there's something else. For instance, in the New Testament, they have Jesus saying, Suffer the children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In the newer version, it says, Encourage or permit the children to come to me, because this is the condition or the mentality of the state of heaven, something like this. And because suffer today would mean, you know, discomfort, you know, like punish the children and make them come. And it's, uh, it's now debatable what's the meaning here. Another thing that they would have to do today, they'd have to do it again. If you're going to really be accurate, you'd have to update one more time because I can think of a number of words that have the opposite meaning. Because in the 1950s, there was a particular word used in the Bible and used in vogue at that time that was meaning that people were happy, cheerful, in a good spirit. The word is gay. And if you said that today, they would get a totally different meaning out of it. If you said Jesus was gay, they would say, oh my God, this is horrible. How could you say such a thing? Whereas, uh, obviously, uh, they're given a meaning that was used at that time. So, having said that, let's press on. I wanted to uh, mention, with my love and respect for the Word of God, it increased more and more as I spent more and more time reading and trying to understand the message. 
It became my most prized, my most valuable, and most respected of all books in my life. And I turned to it throughout my life for times of joy, happiness, and times of trouble, sadness, or pain. It became my compass and my roadmap, my weather vane and my friend. However, there were still problems with this new, improved version of the Bible. It began to disturb and concern me to the extent that I made a consultation, sure, with my father about this subject because I wanted to understand about these contradictory verses and the errors which I seemed to be finding in the Bible. He was also an ordained minister and a student of the Bible, as I mentioned, since childhood. Based on his research and background in the origin and sources of modern-day Christianity, I began to go deeper into the problems which plagued my little thinking and my faith ever since I was a kid. I also prayed to Almighty God and then found the answers to some of the problems were spelled out very clearly in the very beginning of the exact same book. This now I'm going to quote to you, and my purpose for turning to this is to quote this from my own Bible. This is my Bible, and uh, I even drew a picture of it. It's on the website, so you can see what it looks like. This is the King James Version revised. Okay, And this is in the version I just told you. My grandfather gave it to me, and it's on page III and IV, which is 3 and 4 in the before it starts the actual Bible. It's a reference. It says, and I quote, The King James Version has, with good reason, been termed the noblest monument of English prose. Its revisers in 1881 expressed admiration of its simplicity, dignity, power, happy turns of expression, the music of its cadences, felicities of its rhythm. It entered, as no other book has, in the making of the personal character and the public institutions of the English-speaking peoples. We owe to it an incalculable debt. Yet, the King James Version has grave defects. By the middle of the 19th century, the development of the biblical studies and discovery of many manuscripts more ancient than those upon which the King James Version was based, made it manifest that these defects are so many and so serious as to call for a revision of the English translation. This task was undertaken by the authority of the Church of England in 1870. The English Revised Version of the Bible's was published in 1881 through 1885, and the American Standard Version, its variant embodying the preferences of the American scholars associated in the work, was published in 1901. Because of the unhappy experience with unauthorized publications in the two decades between 1881 and 1901, which tampered with the text of the English Revised Version in the supposed interest of the American public, the American Standard Version was copyrighted to protect the text from unauthorized changes. In 1928, this copyright was acquired by the International 
International Council of Religious Education and thus passed into the ownership of the churches of the United States and Canada, which were associated in this council through their boards of education and publication. This is by the biblical scholars themselves telling us the source of the Bible. I want to just briefly mention a few more that points that there. I don't want to read all of it to you. It's available, though, if you would like to. Certainly, you can have the whole thing. It's several pages. But just to continue in the context of our discussion this morning. And I quote, Decision was reached that there is a need for a thorough revision of the version of 1901. In the 1937 revision, it was authorized by a vote of the council. You could vote on this, and that's how they come to this next one. Thirty-two scholars have served as members of the committee charged with making the revision. They have secured the review and counsel of advisory board of 50 representatives of the cooperating denominations. Each section has submitted its work to the scrutiny of the members of the charter of the committee requiring that all charge changes have to be agree agreed on by two-thirds majority vote of the total membership committee. Here's another quote. The problem of establishing the correct Hebrew and Aramaic text of the Old Testament is very different from the corresponding problem in the New Testament. And another quote. For the New Testament, we have a large number of Greek manuscripts preserving many variant forms of the text. Some of them were made only two or three centuries after the original composition of the books. For the Old Testament, only late manuscripts survive all with the exception of the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah and Habakkuk and fragments of other books, are based on a standardized form of the text established many centuries after these books were written. The present revision is based on the consonantal. This means the consonants, because there are no verbs. We know that in Arabic, this, the Arabic is the same. There are not, I mean, there, I said verbs. There are no vowels. There are all consonants, and that's what they're talking about. This is talking about the consonants. The present re revision is based on the consonantal Hebrew and Aramaic text as fixed early in the Christian era, revised by Jewish scholars, the Maserati. The Maseratis are in the 6th to the ninth centuries. The vowel signs which were added by the Maseratis were accepted also in the main, but were more probable and convincing reading that can be obtained by assuming different vowels than this is what we've done. Do you understand what they're saying? We looked at what they did, but if it didn't fit with what we think, then we changed it. Now, it's interesting for the Muslims, I'm going to step out of this just for a moment. Please bear with me. It's interesting for Muslims to note that the Qur'an also came without vowel markings. These were added later, after the time of Uthman, 
over 30 years after the time of Muhammad Sallallahu they began to add these vowel markings to be sure that we didn't lose the meaning along with the pronunciation. At that time, there were still many people who had heard the Qur'an from Muhammad wasallam, so there was no doubt in what the vowel marking should be. It was after the Muslims added vowel markings to the Arabic text of Qur'an that the Maseratis began to add vowel markings to the Hebrew of the text that they had. Proof? I just read it to you. It was not until the 6th through the ninth centuries that they did that. What was the century that Muhammad came in? Hello? Hello, thank you very much. There you are. So this is a proof for you. And they did copy that because for the 5,000 years before that, they didn't do it. So why all of a sudden did they do it then? And we know why. Because they realized if they didn't do it, then they wouldn't be even keeping up with the text of the Qur'an. Another point, it said vowel points are less ancient and less reliable than the consonants. This is in the Bible telling you about the Bible that they've got. These are less reliable than the consonants. Departures from the consonantal text of the best manuscripts have been made only when it seems clear that there are errors in copying that have been made before the text was standardized. Another quote. Most of the corrections adopted are based on the ancient versions such as Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, and Latin which were made before the time of the Masoretti revision. Therefore, they reflect earlier forms of the text. Another quote. Many difficulties and obscurities, of course, still remain. Another quote. Where the choice between two meanings is particularly difficult or doubtful, we have given an alternative rendering in a footnote. Another quote. If the judgment of the committee that the meaning of a passage is quite uncertain or obscure, either because of corruption in the text or because of inadequacy of our present knowledge of language, that fact has been indicated by another footnote. Another quote. It should not be assumed, however, that the committee was entirely sure or even unanimous concerning every rendering. Not so indicated. Another quote. To record all the minority views was obviously out of the question. Another quote. The King James Version of the New Testament was based upon a Greek text that was marred by mistakes containing the accumulated errors of 14 centuries of manuscript copying. I want to take a break here. Please listen patiently with me. Those of you online, this is a live broadcast. This is not a rebroadcast. You're listening to us live today. It's now Saturday morning. We're in November. As far as I know, it's probably the 19th of November in 2005. So if you're online with me, that's this is live. If you hear it in the future, okay, then it's almost live. <laughs> but I want to take a break from this and, and mention, it says here by there, and this is 50 years ago, it said that the King James Version of the New Testament is based upon a Greek text, Greek, not Aramaic, 
marred by mistakes containing accumulated errors of 14 centuries of manuscript copying. We as Muslims have the Quran which is also exactly that age, 14 centuries right now. And it is not marred by any mistakes whatsoever. It's exactly today as it was 1400 years ago because Quran is meaning recitation and there are more people reciting it than writing it. We have today more than 10 million human beings, the majority of which are not Arab in non-Arab countries, many here in the United States and England and Canada, even in Mexico, memorizing it from mouth to ear just as it was memorized at the time of Muhammad and there is no deviant or uh, argument uh, uh, in the text whatsoever. It's always the same. There's no difference. Vowel markings being the only exception. And we've already discussed that. And this is something accepted to the scholars of the Bible. It's accepted also to the Muslims. I'll give you an example, case in point. And it says in the Quran, How many of you got a problem with what I just said? Anybody? Let me go back a little bit. What's wrong with that? Alayhim. But that's a vowel marker. That is a... What? Doma? I'm saying Doma. I'm putting U. And you're putting a Kesra. And you're saying E. So I'll read it again with what you want me to say from what you have in the most common of the writings of the Quran. And it says, Ihdina suratul mustaqim Ihdina suratul mustaqim Suratul ladina namta alayhim Ghayril magdubi alayhim the other one is also correct. Both of these are correct. These are different rawayas, chain of narrations, and both are correct. But it doesn't change the meaning. It's just whether or not you use a u or a e because the word is identically the same. Those guys are these guys. It's still the guys. Alehim, alehum. So. There is that in the Quran, that there are actually seven perfect uh, narrations coming from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu with no difference in meaning, but difference in this. Ten total, and uh, that when you add in some that are still good, they're not the, the, the perfect. And then it goes all the way up to 13 and even 20. And there are minor variations like this, but never does it change words. Like sword, uh, first of all, sword's not even in the, in the Quran. It's 200 times in the Bible, but never in the Quran, so I won't even use that. But let's say it said camel in one place and donkey somewhere else. It doesn't say that. It refers always to the same thing. So there's no differences except for vowel markings. We have the Quran, and it's memorized by so many millions of people today without any difference in it. Now I want to come back where I was almost finished reading this to you and continue. It's talking about these 14 centuries of copying uh, 
and the errors that happen. It says it was essentially the Greek text of the New Testament that was edited by Beza in 1589, who closely followed the text that was published by Erasmus in 1516, which was based upon a few medieval transcripts or manuscripts. The earliest and best of the eight manuscripts which um, Erasmus consulted was actually from the 10th century, yet he had made very little use of it because it differed the most from the commonly received text. In other words, it wasn't popular, so he left it. Beza, the one taking it from Erasmus, had access to two manuscripts of great value dating all the way back to the 5th and 6th centuries. But he made very little use of those because they differed from the text published by Erasmus. And in the book by F.F. Bruce, he details some of the mistakes that were made by Beza because he was trying to get along with all the people and make something they would all agree on. And they came up with stuff in the Kone Greek that they said, well, here it is. And you said you would accept it. But he said, yeah, but this was only written a hundred years ago. They said, but it's in the original language of Kone Greek. So they had to compromise on a lot of things. One case in point, for those who are listening to me in the future would like to know about this, look it up. In your book, in your uh, explanation of verses, from the Revised Standard Version, look in the first letter or epistle of John. There's John 1, John 2, John 3. Those are not part of John the Gospel. But go to John 1, the epistle, chapter 5, verse 7. The statement that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and these three are one. This is an interpolation added exactly by Beza at that time for that reason. And it's a playoff of the verse before it. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Spirit, and the blood, and these three agree. Not these three are one. So if you'd like to look that up, F.F. Bruce does a nice dissertation on that. I'll leave it with you to decide for yourself. Let me finish with the last statement. It says, By these revisers of the revision of the revision of the revision of the revisers of revision, it says, We now possess many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that are far better equipped to seek to recover the original wording of the Greek text. The evidence for the text of the books of the New Testament is better for any other ancient book. Better than, ah, The evidence for the text of the books of the New Testament is better than any for any other uh, ancient book, both in the number of extant manuscripts and in the nearness of the date of some of these manuscripts to the date when the books were actually written. This is very clear for us. We don't have to go very much further. For those who have studied the collection of Quran and how it's preserved, there's no way you can compare and say that these are in any way similarly preserved. We would not, as Muslims, even accept this as a hadith, much less as a Quran. The hadiths 
chain of narrators have to be unbroken all the way back to the lips of the original person saying so and they had to have a, a, a lot of character about them described. We had to know who they were, where they were born, when they accepted Islam, and what they said, and if they ever made any mistakes, if they ever made you know errors in their memory, if they ever prevaricated, said a lie, things like this are all in consideration. Not once have we even found a single person that we can attribute to this Bible a single word. You cannot say, we know for sure that this is the handwriting of George or Fred, or Matthew, or Mark, or anybody else. We don't know the actual writing of any single person. Therefore, the conclusion for me as a Muslim is, until you can come up with a better proof, I'm going to stick with the Quran, because we know exactly the source. Inna anzalnahu fi Allah sent it down Himself in the night of power by the angel. Jibril, Gabriel, who brought it to his servant, Muhammad, who in turn listened to it, memorized it, and then recited it to his companions, Abu Bakr, Ibn Mas'ud, Omar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhu ajma'in. May Allah be pleased with them all and reward them. Amen. The Quran has been preserved by not ten people or a hundred people, but it was preserved by thousands and thousands of people at the time of Muhammad who passed it on generation after generation after generation. There is no doubt in our minds whatsoever as to what the Quran is about. However, and I want to share this with you, and also for the benefit of those Christians, Jews, or others who may be listening in the future, we as Muslims even though what I just read to you, we still do not criticize the Bible. We do not cut down the Bible, nor do we disbelieve in the Bible. We are more believers in the Bible than the people who wrote what I just read to you. The people who I just quoted from do not have the commitment to the real Bible that we have because our book tells us that this is a condition of belief for us. Allah says in the Quran, and the meaning of this to the English language is very beautiful. And it says after the first three letters, Alif, Lam, Mim, then look what it says. That is the book wherein there is no doubt. And the word Zalika does not mean Haza. It doesn't say this is the book. It says that is the book. And it means the book which is with Allah. Because this is a quotation from Allah, from His book. That's why we know it can never be corrupted. Because He's preserving Himself. Not us. Because if it were left to the Muslims that I know today, Wallahi, we would be in worse shape than the Jews and Christians are with their book. But it's only by Allah's qadr, His 
power and his predestination of this that this book will never be changed until the last days. Now, the rest of the translation, it said, that is the book wherein there is no doubt. It's a source of guidance, but, and I'm adding the word but, but only for those who have taqwa. Many people have read the Bible and they weren't Muslim. Um, they didn't, I'm talking about the, the Quran. Many people read the Quran, but they weren't Muslim and they didn't believe it. Just as many people read the Bible and they're not Christian or Jew and they don't believe it either. None of these books will guide anybody if they don't want to be guided. It continues and it tells you what the condition of taqwa is, righteousness, piety. That you have to establish worship. You have to pay charity. You have to believe in the unseen, al-ghaib. All of this is a part and parcel of being a real believer. If you can't believe there's a paradise, you just said, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Or you can't believe in a hell, I think the earth is the hell. Astaghfirullah. And if you said, well, I'm not real sure that there's really a God, maybe it's just like, you know, just uh, a consciousness. This is again not a belief in the ghaib. If they don't want to believe in the angels, if they don't want to believe in the jinn, again, this is not acceptable. We believe in all of this as Muslims. But then look at the next condition. And they believe in what's being sent down Ilaika to you, O Muhammad, which is Quran. And they believe in what was sent down Min Kablik, which means before you, which means the Bible. And these are the people on the guidance from Allah. And these are the people that are successful. None others are going to be successful with Allah except those who will believe. And we believe in every single word of the Bible in the original form when it was revealed. It doesn't exist like that anymore. We just read it from right here from the scholars themselves. However, we still don't doubt that it did exist in the beginning and the Quran preserves and the Hadith preserve some of the teachings of the Bible. Do you want to know what the Bible said? Read the Quran and you'll know. And then it'll get rid of these doubts that you may have. You're talking to a person, actually you're listening to a person, because you guys aren't talking back to me. <laughs> but you're listening to a person now who has studied these texts personally. Regardless of how accurate or inaccurate that I might be in my assumptions, I'm telling you I have studied these texts. I've looked into the Hebrew dictionaries. I've looked into Kone Greek. I've studied the, the variances between that and the English I've looked into the Arabic of the Quran and the Arabic of the Bible and the English translations of these and I finally, after many years, came to an amazing conclusion. First of all, there's no doubt in my mind the Quran in Arabic is absolutely, positively unchangeable. You can't change it. Not even a verse can be changed. Not even a word and not even a letter. Vowel markings not included. For sure, you can't do it. You can't. At the same time, though, I found that the Bible does not contradict the Quran, except in places where it contradicts itself. If I remove 
from the Bible, any place that contradicts the Quran, keeping that part which doesn't contradict the Quran, I will have a document that's so complimentary, you would have to say it's from the same source. Example, and then I'll be finished. And we have many on our website. I hope you'll visit our website talking about it. It's one of the articles we have called Son of Who. The Son of Who, I'm going to post that right now for those of you who are online. You might like to have this, and I'd like for you to have a chance to see it. The Son of Who, this is, I'm going to paste it up there for you right now. Yeah, there it is. We have quite a few folks who joined us this morning, mashallah. There it is. You can click on that. I'm not going to give you the whole thing. Don't panic. I'm not going to read all of that this morning. But you can take from that and understand. And I'm going to give you a quote. Many people know there are references in the New Testament talking about the Son of God. But did you know that there are similar quotes in the Old Testament talking about sons of God? Many sons of God. Starting all the way in the very first book. And I'll quote them quickly too. You'd like to make a note of it or you can read some of the articles that we have posted. But it says it very, very clear. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, found them to be fair, took them to wed, went in unto them. And it's talking about the, these are the people of the mighty men of old, these sons of God. Next occurrence is in Job, Ayub chapter 2. The sons of God were going to and fro from the earth up to God. What is that? Sounds like angels, doesn't it? Another reference to the sons of God, you'll find one particular being the best of the sons of God, the begotten son of God, is David. Psalms 2, verse 7. That David says to the congregation, he used to address the congregation extending his hands and blessing them. That's what it says in the Bible. And on one of those occasions he said, I will tell you a decree the Lord hath decreed on this day. Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Now today's modern day Christians say, well, that's Jesus. Really? So what happened? What happened to David was all of a sudden overcome by the Spirit and he turned into Jesus? What are you saying? Additionally, you look into the New Testament. It tells you real clear in Luke chapter 3, the last verse, 38. Enos is the son of Seth, Seth is, the, by the way, this is the genealogy of Jesus, and it says Jesus was the son of Joseph. The translators added the parentheses I was telling you about earlier, and they said, as was supposed. Some people supposed that. Oh, Jesus was the son of Joseph is what it said in the text, and they changed it, as was supposed. We as Muslims don't accept that. We don't have a Joseph. We just have the miracle birth, immaculate conception. Miriam, peace be upon her, gave birth to a baby and there was no husband and no intervention. It was a miracle mu'ajizim in Allah. We believe it without, without question. We believe that. But here in the Bible, in the book of Luke, Jesus is the son of Joseph. Then they added as was supposed. And then they gave a genealogy which doesn't match the genealogy in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
which has 42 fathers, this has 56 fathers, all the way back to Abraham. And then from Abraham, it continues to endeavor to go all the way back to Adam. And it says, Enos is the son of Seth, and Seth is the son of Adam, and Adam is the son of God. Who? Son of who? Son of God. Read the article we have on that one. I'm going to wrap it up with that. You've been listening to Islam always. And we always hope you'll come back here for more and more to know about Islam, what we believe and what we teach, what our sources are, and how you can learn more about Islam. If you have any questions for us, write to us at askislam, A-S-K-I-S-L-A-M, at AOL.com. Until next time, this is Yusuf Estes wishing the very best for all those who seek truth. May Allah always make easy for you your way to truth and success. Ameen. Subhanakallahum bihamdik ashadu wa la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruk wa atubu alayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.